If you'll turn with me one last time to Isaiah chapter 9 this morning. The last three weeks, few weeks, we've gone through the from the first chapter of Genesis, first chapters of Genesis, and Genesis chapter 3 in particular, then to the prophet Isaiah, to the one who was born in Bethlehem. And we've found the coming of the Savior was shown in the curse that was placed there in Genesis chapter 3 on Satan. The seed of the woman would, would bruise his head. And we've seen the prophecy of Isaiah, the, the names that he would be called. And from those names, we've been able to understand his character and, and grasp a, a little bit about uh, who he is and, and what that means in our lives. So we come to this last portion uh, from these two verses We're in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. If you're able, would you stand with me, and I'll read the Word of God. Lord, come upon us today, that we might have some glimpse of your zeal, and what that means, and how you are unfailing, and your purposes are always accomplished, and they are perfect, and they are good. Send your Holy Spirit to open our eyes today as we read your word that we would understand these things we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace, On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Now if you've been here through all this, you know that we did Wonderful Counselor, we did Mighty God, and we did start back in Genesis 3. To understand that. And we did Prince of Peace on Christmas Eve. And you're going, well, Randy, I really wanted to know about the Eternal Father. Because isn't he the Son of God? But Isaiah says he's the Eternal Father. Uh, we, the schedule just didn't work out. We didn't get to that one. <laughs> and that's the most, in, in a sense, to some degree, that's the most theological compelling one. Because it does sound like kind of uh, strange. Well, how can he be the Eternal Father? But yet he's the Prince of Peace, but yet he is the Son, but Isaiah says he is the Eternal Father. You understand that if you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father, for the I and the Father are one. I mean, that's just a brief synopsis of that. But uh, we we see that. But today we come to this last portion in verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is the motivation for what the Lord does. Now, often it's tied into his glory, often it's tied into his purposes, but he does this out of the zeal that he has. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Now, isn't it interesting that the Lord does not say, because of your sin, I want you to go out and do something fantastic and try to save yourselves, because you have really messed it up. He doesn't say that to us. He doesn't say, I want you to go and perform these tasks and you will be delivered. You'll get back in my good graces. Here are the five things that you need to do. If you just do those every day or once in your life, then there's a chance for you to get back in my good graces. The Lord does not say that. He says, I am going to do this. 
Shall we pull out the worship folder and once more and look at what the Lord does in Ephesians chapter 1? He has blessed us. He has chosen us. He has predestined us. It is according to the purposes of his will for his glorious grace, which he has blessed us. In him we have redemption through his blood, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavishes on us. He makes known the mystery of his will according to his purposes, which he set forth to unite all things in him. The zeal of the Lord accomplishes this. This is not... This is not willy-nilly. The Lord just does not go, oh, I wonder what I'll do today, and, 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 and maybe I'll change it for tomorrow. No, the Lord makes a plan, and he makes it from before the foundations of the earth, and the zeal of the Lord accomplishes those things and his purposes. I will bring this child into the world, and I will bring about your salvation. That's what the Lord says. He doesn't say, I'm going to bring this child into the world, and I'm going to give you a chance at salvation, and you may fall short of it. Well, shame on you for falling short of it. He says, no, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to enable you, and I'm going to come, and I'm going to save you, and I'm going to draw you unto myself, and you'll find a love and a care and a, and a peace that you've never known before. Now, the, for the people here in Isaiah, they had to wait 600 years before this child came into being. But this was the prophecy. This was the answer to their problems. This was the guarantee that the Lord had not deserted them. He says, I will save you and it will be through this child. Now the question that really plagues us, and I'll make the assumption for all of us because it plagues me, why? I mean, why? Why would the Lord do this? I mean, why in the world were our Heavenly Father, who's got all power, and he's got all knowledge, and he's got all wisdom, and he is everywhere, and he has all righteousness and all justice and all authority rest in him. There's not a bit of authority anywhere else that's not in him. Why would he go to all this trouble and do this particular work for us? To redeem those who by their very actions reveal ourselves to be unworthy of the work that he does for us. Unworthy of this love and unworthy of this grace. I mean, why have the Son, the Son who's the same essence, the same substance as the Father, leave the throne, leave that position of authority at the right hand of the Father, he rules over all things, take on the form of a man and give his life to atone for our sin. I mean, who among us is worth this sacrifice? And you say, you say, well, I was pretty good this week, a couple times. Well, that's this week, okay? Were you perfect? Were you perfect all week? Well, I was close. I was, yesterday I was really, I didn't have any problems yesterday. What about the day before? Well, there was one, one does it. Remember, if you fail in one portion of the law, you fail everywhere. Now, frankly, if you had asked me, which is probably best, you, we don't. It's just not the smart thing for God to do. I mean, I might have been inclined just to wipe everybody out and start again, okay? Let's just wipe the slate clean like the Etch-a-Sketch. You know, you're there you got the, the knobs and you're turning them and you don't like what you've produced. And you pick it up and you shake it and you turn it over and what's there? Nothing. And you start again. You just wipe them out. I can do better the second time. Well, th there are plenty of people in the world who like that view of God who want to think that God is pretty much like we are, that, that well, 
You know, if I were him, I'd do it this way, and I think this is kind of the way that God is, so they want to bring God down to us. They don't like it. They're uncomfortable with a God who plans out things from before the foundations of the earth, and he carries them out in a perfect fashion, but yet you go, well, well there's this sin of man, and, and, and there's this chaos, and, and what about this, and what about that? How does that work into your plan? How does evil work into a plan of a God who is all good and all powerful and all righteous? How does that work? And they're not comfortable with that. They think that doesn't work together. But yet God, who is over all things, who has all knowledge, who is present everywhere, has those things taken into consideration. God doesn't need a second time around. He doesn't need a plan B. He doesn't need a do-over. Because when he does it once, it is perfect. The plan can't be more perfecter. It just is perfect. He, from before the foundation of the world, had in his mind the plan of salvation. Had in his mind the way that it was going to work. And when it comes to the likes of us, saving the likes of us. And what accomplishes this? It is his zeal. It is his zeal. Now... Spurgeon has, Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, as you know, is one of my favorites, and he's written extensively on this word. So let me quote just a little bit from him. The zeal of the Lord of hosts shall perform this. He says, we judge a man's zeal when the purpose has been long in his heart. Now the plan of grace through Jesus Christ was in the eternal heart of God before the worlds were made. He had it all in his mind. Hence, he speaks of Christ as the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. And never once has the divine mind turned aside from this purpose. So just think about this for a moment. What zeal God must have toward the achievement of this design when through these long ages he is still resolved to push on the work which he determined to do. It has not left his mind to save his people. Never has it left his mind. That all, think again, that all the agents of providence that have ever occurred on this globe have had an eye to this purpose. Well, what does Spurgeon mean there? He means that everything that has happened according to the providence of God has been to the purpose of saving God's people. Well, what about that war? What about those massacres? You know, did you ever read about Stalin and all the people that he killed? Well, yeah, but that has a purpose in God's plan. Well, well, what about the tragedies in my life? Do you realize what has gone on? Does God really have that? Did he have that in mind? Is that part of his plan? No agent of providence has been outside the work of saving his people. Well, that's hard to take sometimes because we all know things in our lives and we're thinking, oh, Lord, that, that really didn't help me at all, okay? In fact, that almost put me in the grave, well, almost. Well, that destroyed my family. Well, what was the Lord doing in the midst of that? You may never know in this world. Sometimes you simply rest in the fact that his providence is at work because from before the foundations of the world, he had chosen you. He was at work in your life planning these things out. 
And what accomplishes that? It is his zeal. And his zeal continues. You know, you can get excited about a project, right? Oh, a new project, a new something new to conquer, and you get all jazzed up about it, and then it begins to wane after a while. Maybe you're a startup type of person, okay? And you start up a lot of things, and it wanes very quickly. God's zeal does not wane. He can start eight gazillion projects, and his zeal for eight gazillion projects continues for all eternity at the same level. It is his zeal. So let's look at that word for a moment and understand what the word zeal in Isaiah means. It means ardor, fervor, intense devotion, or jealousy. Okay, all those words go into that word zeal. And the root of the word comes from the color that is produced in your face from that emotion. Okay, maybe like a redding, a blushing, a flushing, something like that. That's the root of the word. When you're really hot for something, when you're really striving for something, it's the color in your face because you're intent upon it. Now in our minds, the idea that zeal and jealousy might be something that, that are similar is strange because it appears that the word jealousy is, is an offensive word. Jealousy is identified in the Bible as a sin to be avoided. But in those cases, jealousy refers to being resentful over something. Over something another person has. I'm jealous of, uh, uh, you know, Donald's tie. I really, really want that tie today. I'm, I'm here. And I, so jealousy, I'm coveting, okay? I've gone past jealousy to coveting. That's, that's bad. We understand that Joseph's brothers were, called, were, were said to be jealous of him and of, of, of the father's their father's affection and his place in his heart. So how can it be that jealousy is the very thing that accomplishes and establishes God's eternal saving plan in his eternal kingdom? How can God be jealous? Well, if you look back in Exodus 34, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. It's very, very clear throughout Scripture often that God is a jealous God. He is jealous for his people. He is jealous for a variety of things. His deity, his sovereignty. He is jealous for those who belong to him. He is jealous for his glory. All of these things he is jealous for in the sense that they belong to him. They do not belong to anybody else. He doesn't share his glory. You have no other gods but him. He doesn't share his deity. Although we have three persons of the Trinity, they are the same God. They're not sharing deity. They are together. Again, Spurgeon says, The word jealous is so near akin to that noble word zealous that I am persuaded it must have something good in it. Certainly we learn from Scripture that there is such a thing as godly jealousy. The Apostle Paul Declares to the Corinthian church, I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. An earnest, cautious, anxious concern for holiness. That's godly jealousy. God is a jealous God. Why? Because he doesn't share his praise. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other nor my praise to idols made with hands. That's from Isaiah 42. God maintains, he protects and rightly watches over those things that belong to him. So when he says he is zealous for them, he is jealous for them, 
He has regard for those things that belong to him. They belong to no one else. So the God of all power and all authority is jealous for you because you belong to him. He is zealous for your salvation and the working out of that plan in your life. Isaiah chapter 59 says, He put on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. So his zeal and his jealousy, it's like he wears it. It is zeal and jealousy for us. It has to do with God himself coming as a redeemer. God himself being so zealous for our salvation that he sends the Son. And the Son comes willingly. To whom... Will you compare me? Who is my equal, God says in Isaiah. I, even I am the Lord. Apart from me, there's no Savior. Apart from the Lord, there's no Savior. I am the Lord. There is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. This zeal, this jealousy of God arises in in his unchangeable knowledge that, that only he is God. His unchangeable love that he has for us. How many of us can change our love for others? How many of us have loved people and then not loved them with the same zeal as before? How many of us have devoted ourselves to something and then not that that zeal has waned? God's zeal does not wane for us. His love does not wane for us. Again, Spurgeon, it seems to me that his plan was that this... Jesus, his only son, should come into this world and take upon himself the flesh and nature of fallen creatures, that in that flesh he should die and put away the guilt of their sin, and that by his flesh, when risen, he should establish a link between them and God, so that there should be nothing between God and man. Now we say there is Christ that stands between us, but in reality there is nothing between us and God because of the work of Christ. You can go right to the throne of grace. Why? Because he is zealous for you. He has made this way for you. You can go right before him with all that you are. God's zeal will not leave one little thing undone. You know, we get excited about things and, and we get involved and, and we think of the big picture and, and we're, we're, we're doing it and little things might get past us and we think, oh, that, that really doesn't matter. Somebody else will pick up that. No, God picks up everything, not one jot, not one tittle of the covenant, not one morsel of his grace is not taken care of and given to us. Nothing is left unfulfilled. He has sworn by Christ that he will bring salvation to his people. The zeal of the Lord will carry this out. Nothing else could secure God's own but his zeal, his jealousy for us. The zeal of the church could not do it. God knows who belongs to him. He knows where to find them. He knows where to get them. And they will come to him because he will draw them unto himself. We see the zeal of the Lord in the incarnation of Christ. He left the right hand of the Father and came into this world. God became man. Who would have thought that that was a good plan? 
God did. And why would he do that? Because he is jealous for you. Let's pray. Lord, such a redemption. We can't can hardly fathom this. I mean, what type of love is this? That you would be jealous for us. That you would create us. Know that we're going to slide into sin. Know how weak we would be. But yet, you still love us. You're still jealous for your own. It is your zeal that accomplishes our salvation. And it has been planned from before the foundations of the earth. This has come to us in this child, Christ. It has come to us in the life that he lived without sin. In the life that he gave away for us on the cross. When he willingly laid down his life and bore the weight of our sin upon his shoulders. It will come to fruition when he returns once again. Comes in all of his glory. Comes in all of his power. Comes as the judge. Lord, you have placed this knowledge within us today. It is not something that we come upon on our own. It is not something that we get from human wisdom. Our eyes are open to your word by your ability, by the power of your spirit that we might understand to some degree the depths of your love for us. Fix these things in our hearts, Lord, that we might live them out and be just as zealous and jealous for you. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.